Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. So I'm here with my good pal, Professor John McManus. And uh, John and I are over here in Normandy at the moment. We've just been in a cafe in Bayeux, a back street of, um, in, the, in the Rue Saint-Jean, I should say. Um, and I've just been to the tapestry for the first time ever. I'm a bit embarrassed to say that I've never been there before. But boy, that's impressive, isn't it? Absolutely. Been there a number of times. I think the key to enjoying the tapestry is if there's not a big crowd. Yep. If there's a big crowd, then you can't see anything diddly squat yeah so we were in i think we were first you know we were first draft in this morning so it was pretty clear uh, you got there at the right time uh, and had this fantastic um english commentator on my little handpiece that yeah. they give you he was really old school thespian um which right. actually kind of added to it and you have the little sort of you know um sort of lutes and things in the background which i kind of thought actually rather added to it but i was really really impressed and of course you know that's an invasion going the other way around yeah Going back across the channel, <laughs> but but our yeah, business yeah, this week is the, the the invasion of the sixth of June, and you've just written about this on the dead and those about to die. The amazing book about the big red one, the first infantry division on Omaha Beach. Yeah, yeah. So kind of what you know, what made made you kind of go for that? Well, I mean, it's such a it's such an iconic part of America's history, it, isn't it? It is like it's right up there with Gettysburg, um, Bunker Hill, Yorktown. I mean, you name it. When Americans think of war, they often think of Omaha Beach. Of course. They think of Normandy and they think of Omaha Beach. But uh, what occurred to me is that, you know, as iconic as the battle was, most of the, the American fixation had been on the 29th Division, the Rangers especially, especially after Private Ryan. Because that's showing the, the the kind of western end of the beach where the because exactly. they you know Tom Hanks and Co are Rangers right yeah exactly so you know obviously that's important but and it, but it, you know what's interesting about it is that popular history was following the original military history because uh, what I found is the original combat historians documented reams of stuff from the 29th and the Rangers and I'm talking like 400 500 pages of after mm. action you know interview stuff yeah from the survivors I've read a number of those and, and, and you're right there's a lot more on the uh, 29th infantry than there is the first infantry yeah infantry. first infantry they had 83 pages right you know so and how many pages on the 29th uh, Rangers? Oh, easily 450 plus so why is that uh, I think it's just happenstance. Um, Force Pogue happened to run into the 29th Division guys, and Force Pogue, of course, was the great original combat historian who uh, who has, ironically, the first conversation with John Spaulding, right. one of the key Big Red One guys. Right. But, um, you know, the, the 29th, I guess, just was just more accessible to, for whatever reason. Yep. I really don't know why, but I know that his, subsequent history kind of followed that. And so I, as I thought about it more from studying it actually for decades is I thought, well, you know, if there's anything that isn't as known as it ought to be about the American experience at Omaha Beach, it's the Big Red One. Right. You know, because, it, you know, you know, James, I mean, it's like, when you do it, when you do a book, you don't want to just recapitulate what someone else has written. And no, if you're not saying something new, there's no point in doing it. Exactly, exactly. Whilst so, at the same time, you don't want to be kind of revisionist for revisionist sake. You want to say something because you've right. got something you want to get off your chest. I something think. Well, that's certainly how I approach yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Something that's going to add... You know, a new perspective, and I thought if we can, uh, the Big Red One will allow us to do that. You know, and, yep. uh, man, and the cool thing was there's so many other sources. Right. So the original combat interviews you don't see a whole lot. 
No. Uh, but the company morning reports, the, mm-hmm. you know, the after action stuff. It's just, it's, anyway, it's just a really rich vein. Right. And as I got deeper into this, I felt that, you know, I can really bring this to life, the average soldier from the yep. ground up, and maybe make some attempt to try and come to terms with what actually happened. That's yep. hard when you're reconstructing combat history. Yep. Um, but it, it was incredible. Well, I don't think anyone's done it better in trying to recreate the experience of the, of the American soldier in World War II landing on D-Day. I think you've absolutely nailed it, it, I've got to say. And, um, uh, and, it, and uh, you know, I should add that, you know, what you've, what you've very cleverly done is... You know, you followed a large number of individuals as their, and their experiences on that day. You know, and I, I know where I'd go for that. I presume you, you're, you're going to the big red one museum and archive yeah. up near Chicago Way. Yeah. Um, yeah Carlisle yeah. Barracks, I guess, because the Army, yep. U.S. Army Heritage Center in Carlisle Barracks, which is in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. which is just a hop and a skip away from uh, about 15 miles away or so from Gettysburg. Right. And it's quite nice because, right. you you know, I mean, what I've done in the past is you, you fly into Washington, D.C., you hire yourself a car mm-hmm. and you go off and you stay in Gettysburg because it's nice and old world and all the rest it of it is it's quite fun awesome. and, <laughs> and do the daily commute to Carlisle. Yeah. And they have amazing numbers of oral oral histories, oh, yeah. don't they? They do, and they have they have uh, surveys, like questionnaires that That's they right. gave veterans over the decades. And so those are great, plus personal papers collections yes. that people had, you know, anybody who's, you know, remotely relevant to the story. Um, that, in addition to, like you said, uh, the, the Cantini First Division Museum in uh, in outside of Chicago. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, see, everyone tells me this. I've never been there, but oh, I've, it's I've heard so it's, awesome. it's... You've got to go well, next, next time, time I'm up the there. US. I highly recommend it next time you're in the U.S. From a you know museum point of view, because it's just been reopened to incorporate the 21st century wars. Yep. Uh, but also from an archival point of view. There, really? So no matter what stuff. you're working on, there's probably something. It's not just Big Red One, all, you know, because the Big Red One is so involved in so many different events throughout modern history that you're going to find something there. Mm. In my case, I stayed there for weeks. Um, and they they were they were really helpful. I was able to just immerse. Wow. Um, so anything that you know, it's just anything we could dig up. The historian there, Andrew Woods, of course, is incredibly conversant on all this stuff. Okay. And uh, you know, so working with him, just bouncing stuff off each other. But what amazed me too is that uh, where I live is um, St. Louis, Missouri, which is in the right. in the heart of the country, and. Um, there's a branch of the National Archives there called the National Personnel Records Center, which has the, the company morning reports. Um, hmm. Yeah, so that's a great source from DJ. Is it? It's a, oh, it's amazing. It's but like, presumably for all campaigns. Um, you know, it depends how much the clerk could write. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, you know, you've got every unit company morning report, right. of course. But there could be some days, like in the middle of the Hurtgen Forest or something, that they hardly documented anything, but they would document, right. except coming and going, casualties or whatever. But I'm talking about descriptions of what happened on D-Day. And I'm talking about from a very good, immersive kind of point of view. Yep. Um, from all, from many or most of the, the rifle companies and, you know, other units too. Uh, so the, the um, Cantini First Division Museum did not have that stuff. So right. I, I got it all, and, you know, and as a token of my incredible gratitude to them, I gave that to them. Right. So they would now have that, you know, forever. Yeah. yeah, yeah so it was yeah. kind of a, a partnering effect in that yeah. regard. But I, I found out some really cool stuff there, you know, in, in terms of like um, what they were thinking at the time and what it looked like a day or two after in their minds. Um, okay. What it, I mean, let's talk the, about that. They're, they're talking about the, you know, of course, the chaos. They're talking about the plan going awry. They're talking about the tides constantly. Tides swept us here. They swept us there. And, and so this It's a real frustration about landing in the wrong place. Oh, my God, yeah. Exactly. They're landing in the wrong place. The, the, the tide 
problems, the, of course, the opposition. Um, there, was, there was an attempt to, to summarize what happens, the experience of what happens with the company. Right. Yeah. But how much do you think that kind of those guys landing in the wrong place, how, mu how much does that, in the big scheme of things, does, does, does it really matter? Oh, I think matter? it really did matter. Yeah, because, okay, because, because the, the whole plan is designed so that they're, they're all coming ashore at the same time in a kind of combined arms way. You just overwhelm the Germans with targets and firepower. Right. Instead, they're landing piecemeal. Okay, so they can be taken off in penny packets. Exactly, and they're landing in the worst spots. Because you know, right. there's definitely course. weaker spots defense-wise. Oh, yeah. That. Oh, for sure. And yet two of the companies, E and F Company, 16th Infantry, land right underneath WN-62, of course. Yeah, which is not a good one. That's just a kill zone. Yeah. It's absolutely terrible. Yeah. And so the fact that there's anybody even alive to yeah. tell the... But the other thing that's kind of staggering when you look at these morning reports is the long list of casualties. Mm. You know, so you've got 75 to 80% casualties in E and yeah. F Company. Right. And, uh, you know, a number of them at that point are listing as MIA. So then you go a few days later, and you may get the confirmation at KIA, maybe some of them at the hospital. I mean, who knows? Most of them are dead. Yeah. Um, so that really does bring it home to you. So what I tried to do is document uh, through there and the other sources exactly whether someone was killed or not, where this would have happened, whatever circumstances we got. It was, it was quite a bit of micro history, history doing, you know, like, yeah, uh, yeah. okay, let's, let's find out where this was and who this guy was, and that was, you know pretty rewarding on a personal level to yes. maybe bring these guys to life again. Um, so th there was that, but you know, the other interesting thing too, the Eisenhower Library in Abilene yes. um, has some really good material as well. And an example I'd give you is there was a young lieutenant who was with one of the first waves and he wrote this very expansive letter home uh, to his family, you know, like maybe a week later after D-Day or something, and he really wanted to get it on the record while it was fresh in his mind. You got that sense. Yep. Um, and, and I don't think that anybody had ever, really ever seen used it. that. Or, no. or, and, and it really did um, help me understand a little bit better what had happened at Easy Red in right. the early hours. Uh, his name was Lieutenant Rob Hutch, I think H-U-C-H, -H, and <clears throat> it was just it was a really well-written letter. Right. So he was writing about the Battle of Normandy, but then he was sort of retrospecting on other D-Day stuff that occurred to him, too. So it was more than just one. The first letter was amazing. Others follow on. It was like, oh, yeah, this, you know, that. Oh, right. So he's, oh, as he's remembering other things. Yeah, and other, yeah, other things. exactly. Yeah. And so what's the overall impression you're getting about this? I mean, you, you, I mean, <clears throat> obviously, the Americans prevail, and, and actually... Mm -hmm. You know, by mid-morning, you know, I know there's counterattacks. I know there's firing still going on, but 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 the the position, the German position, is starting to crumble mm -hmm. fairly early on. Um, but there are obviously these outposts which are incredibly yeah. tough nuts to crack. Yeah, they, they, I, I mean, how how what, I mean, do, do, I mean, what are you left with? Are you left with one of sort of just just unending admiration for what they did, or is it, is it? I mean, obviously, I'm sure that goes without saying, but is it is it more than that? I mean, what what? Do you think the training was up to it, for example? Uh, I do think the training is a major reason why they it succeed. They have a muscle memory. Uh, partially, you know, about 50% of them are combat experience. There's a, there's yes. a unit culture of, okay, this is how we take care of small unit actions. This yep. is what happens when, you know, the top three guys get killed or wounded, and now we got to improvise. There's a, there is a culture of improvisation that I think okay. definitely helps at Omaha Beach. So the, one of the big takeaways, of course, the admiration, yeah, like you said, goes without saying. But what stuck out to me, and I have a whole chapter entitled this, shock. Yep. There's a lot of different ways you can break down that word. Physical shock, emotional shock, mental shock. All of that together creating this situation of extreme crisis point. And I almost, and though I don't, obviously I'm no expert on the medical side or the psychological no. side, but it does get you into that world a bit because 
um, you know, this has kind of physical symptoms when people are in that kind of that kind of uh, crisis mode, and so you, then you can interpret some of what's happening there on that basis. People frozen behind an obstacle. Mm -hmm. um, the, the the tunnel vision vessels are constricting. You don't have as much blood flow to your eyes then. Um, and you know your heart is going bananas, right? Um, and you're you know it's, there's a paralysis effect that's created by this element of fear, and you're seeing that in many of these guys. Yeah. In addition to the bowels the, are emptying and all that kind of stuff, or the opposite, or the opposite. And that's you know the, so I would say emptying probably for about twenty percent or so, right? But the you know the more common um, uh, the more common reaction is constipation, clench up, that that kind of queasy fear in the gut, and just yeah. the, you know the pucker effect, you know yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. thing. I mean, yeah. and so though I would, I'm just giving you a rough estimate. Um, maybe there are some whose bowels evacuate who don't admit to it. Yeah, you know, right. There were some who you know mentioned it. Yeah, and, yeah. But also there were some who who testified to this idea that it was almost hard to move their limbs. You yep. know, because it, again, there's that sense of uh, paralysis by fear. Um, the condition black. Condition now. black. That's condition what. Yes. Black. Condition black. Yeah, black. which black. basically yep. means an extreme crisis point. It's like redlining a vehicle or something like that. It's that's for a human being. So I, re I remember talking to um, a U.S. Army Ranger um, called Bing Evans, Warren mm -hmm. Bing Evans, and uh, he was in North Africa, and then he was at Jella in. Sicily, and then subsequently in, in, in Italy as well. He was captured before he got back to England to be in the D-Day language, yeah. so he wasn't a D-Day. But we were talking about the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, and he said actually he thought as a depiction of kind of the chaos of landings and stuff and war, it was was pretty good. I mean, mm -hmm. we know there are some historical inaccuracies of right. it and all the rest of it, and we know it wasn't totally across the board mm -hmm. on Omaha Beach, um, etc. Yeah. But he said the one bit, he said there's a bit where Tom Hanks's character goes into a kind of, you know, he can't hear, and he goes into a bit exactly. of tunnel vision, and he said, I've had that experience. He said, said I was absolutely, you know, he said when he watched that, you know, his, his blood went cold because he absolutely could relate to that experience. Absolutely, and you know what, you know what that is? It's called acoustic trauma. And I know that because my wife is an audiologist. Right. Very familiar with that. Huh. So it was, it was really cool because, I, you know, I asked her about that scene in yeah. relation to some of my research with the Big Red One guys because some had told me about that or had written about that experience. Yeah. And she said, yeah, that, that's acoustic trauma, which basically means... Your brain is just shutting stuff yeah. out. Because of the concussion and the and the noise and all that, it's what later leads to tinnitus and issues right. with your, you know, your hearing loss and whatever. Yeah. Uh, tinnitus is the constant ringing in the ears. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, no, of course, yeah. Yeah, so what you're getting at that point is just this kind of paralysis in your ears, too, and a <laughs> wooziness, and, uh, and again, it's the same as, as the other senses. It's, it's happening to a lot of these big red one guys. In addition, of course, you have all the physical components of this, how cold you are from the water, yep. um, seasick that you might be. And don't forget, you, you, you've just not slept for two days. Exactly. I mean, if you have, it's been really Damn. snatched catnaps. Yeah, You've right. been bucked around on a kind of rough sea. People have been vomiting <laughs> exactly. and all the rest of it. You're cold, you're drenched. Yeah. Then you come to this hell of bullets. And, and you know, yeah. one of the things I've, I've right. repeatedly pointed out um, is, you know, MG42s, for all their kind of terror, also come with a whole host of problems if you're manning them, you know, overheating and all the rest of it, and, mm -hmm. and lack of accuracy, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that you've got to have all these spare barrels, the fact you've got to carry all this ammo, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But... It doesn't get away from the fact that when you're landing on that beach, you're up against a weapon that can fire 23 bullets a second. Right. And, and, you know, that can cut you in half. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's just terrific. And yep. if you're suddenly coming out of that water and there's, you know, all, all around you, you know, you can totally understand why you would be completely and totally discombobulated. Absolutely. I mean, the, the key is clearly just to keep moving, isn't it? I mean, it you, is. you've just got to 
get your ass off that Which beach. Which is the last thing maybe ASAP. you can do or want to do. Yeah. Because the other thing, too, is you're carrying so much stuff. Mm. And you're almost punch drunk from all this. And as, as I said in the book, it's like, you know, they needed to land like rabbits. Instead, they're tortoises. You know, and they're, they're right. staggering yeah, around punch drunk. And uh, so they're, they're more vulnerable. Yeah. And if there's ever a time when an MG42 can reach its max capacity, it's here. Yeah. In a fixed position where the ammo's already there. Yeah, where well, the range isn't actually that massive in the big yeah. scheme of things. Yeah. And it's just, exactly. you've got sitting ducks, haven't you? Yeah, especially under WN62 yeah. in the, that heart of easy red sector yeah. there. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, but the other thing, too, is the, I think the most powerful weapon the Germans have is their inland artillery. Mm-hmm. So if Lieutenant Freerking, their forward observer, is still in play, which he is for yeah. a lot of the morning, yeah. um, he can call in 24 105 millimeter artillery pieces that yeah. more or less a pre-sided beach. Yeah, 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 yeah. That in addition to all the other stuff you associate with the pillboxes and the mortars. and So yeah, it's just this wave of firepower that you're, you're not ready for. Mm. You're coming in a low tide, yep. 500, 600 yards, something like that, whatever it is. Um, that's a long way. Uh, mm. It's chaos. It's it's shocking, and so I thought that and the, and the other and I kind of I started the I was you know like you do with any book. <laughs> I'm sure you rate this as much as anybody on earth. What's the first line going to be? Where do we start the book? What do we say first? Yes. You know? And uh, for me, it was like I thought. Well, I started all the beauty of the world is gone. Yeah. Because that's probably the way it would look to you right at that moment. Right. What could it, what could exist anywhere but this? And yes, really, is it sucks, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, that absolutely yeah. does. Uh, I uh, I got to know a guy called Walter Halloran. He was a uh, he was a. Did you ever did you meet this guy? I didn't. I never met him. I know who he is. Yeah, yeah so he's yeah. with the camera, and he comes with two pigeons on his back, and one of them drowns. <laughs> and he's the only guy to take any moving footage on the day of someone dropping. Um, and, and you know one can see it on YouTube and all the rest of it but, but he was fascinating about it all the other two guys I, I got to know I was really fortunate was two identical twins Tom and D. Bowles who were in the 18th Infantry mm-hmm. and they'd served in um, Algeria and Tunisia mm-hmm. Sicily you know they'd, yep. they'd been there got the t-shirt <laughs> and when then were there they were uh, at this camp in, just outside in Broadmain just outside Dorchester mm-hmm. and um, yeah and landed on Easy Red and um, I remember Tom Bowles saying that the, the USS Harding coming in really made their life a lot easier and, yeah, because he and, took out this position. And Karmic. Um, right. At WN65. Yeah, because that's where they would have been coming in. And so, mm. like, 18th Infantry, they're typically coming in on Atlantic Craft Infantry, so very vulnerable with yeah. those sort of ramps or steps or whatever down the side of the landing craft yeah. and then into the water. Yeah. Um, so that's under shell fire, mortar shell. Rather than machine gun fire by yeah, that Yeah, probably not machine gun fire, maybe some sniping or whatever. But, yeah. uh, but still, you're like an, <laughs> in a long line of very yes. vulnerable people. And you don't need that pillbox at WN65. No. Nuts on you at that point. So, yeah, when the destroyers come in, they do profound damage. Yeah. Um, and, but, but, you know, I, there's a... Uh, but those quick-firing four-inch guns and cannons that they're kind of putting on horizontally, I mean, they can they put down a huge weight of fire as well. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that kind of occurred... Actually, it just occurred to me yesterday is that, you know, when we're looking at, at accounts of Allied veterans of World War II, mm-hmm. they're always talking about, you know, terrible 88s and yeah, German right. mortars and MGs and Hitler's buzzsaw mm-hmm. and all the rest of it and just how awful it is coming up against the Germans. But, of course, these guys have never faced themselves. Right. Imagine being a German. I mean, you know, absolutely horrific. Because you know, you've got fighter cover as well. You know, you've got them. I mean, one of the things I noticed about the Normandy campaign was when I was looking at German testimonies was just that 
on every page of every account, whether it be a diary, letter, yeah. memoir, or history, they just go on and on and on about the Yarbos, you know, the Vita yep. Bombers. And you sort of think, wow, thank God, you know, our guys didn't have to face with that. They are. They're terrified of them. Yeah. And all that firepower they're on the wrong end of. Right. Yeah. I mean, they And they're constantly having to jump in a ditch. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, as soon as you're doing anything. Exactly. Life is miserable. <laughs> it's absolutely miserable. <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, there was a raging argument for decades as to who took out that pillbox of WN65. Right. Was it Harding or was it? Is it 467? Right, right, right. Is it the. And to me, that's all pointless. Yes. Because it's basically a team effort with a bunch of people shooting at it. In but, the course but, I mean, but how close yeah. is the Harding when it comes uh, in? Well, about a thousand yards. Okay, but, but I would say Frankfurt does the most damage, in okay. my view. But that, but that, a thousand yards is nothing. Oh, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's yeah, not even a mile. That's what's that, two thirds of a mile? Not even that. Not even that. And so it's shoal water, so you can run aground. Yeah. And they don't know that there's no naval guns that are really going to hit them there. I mean, you know, they know there's mm. a lot of bad things that can happen. And so, yeah, they, they're they putting pretty accurate fire in. And of course, you, you know, it's like a, that chipped part of the, yep. the pillbox there. But you've also had anti aircraft guns firing, you've had people firing bazookas, you've had all this kind of stuff go on. Yep. So I believe personally it's the combination of all right, that that right, quote, right. persuades the Germans to get yeah. out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We should give full credit to the the Allied naval gunnery because it's absolutely well just naval seamanship. I mean, it's absolutely exceptional, isn't it? it? Clearing all those mines. I mean, 255, it's the biggest mine-sweeping operation of the entire war of the night of D-Day. Right. You know, with those swells, with those waves, at night, in the dark, you know, rain coming down. I mean, what a nightmare job that must have been. And and the whole fate of the entire invasion. Right. (laughs) And it's just completely forgotten. No one ever mentions it. I know. Just take Uh, it for granted. Yeah, they do. And I think people could take for granted the quality of of gunnery. I mean, it is absolutely exceptional. And I was was looking at one of the shells from um, probably HMS Ajax on the guns at Long Sumer. And you can see it's gone straight through the shield, hitting the main part of the gun. There's a big sort of, you know, bit of molten... Uh, and, and the and the, the spalling has just gone everywhere. Yep. Uh, you know that's one hell of a shot, isn't it? From Absolutely. kind of five miles out at sea. I mean, that's amazing. You consider the arc and the the windage and the the mist. Yeah. Okay, so I have a theory yeah. about the Allied navies because I think they're kind of under yeah. underappreciated generally mm-hmm. in World War Two. But I think because there is this naval tradition both in the U.S. But in 1939. You know, the, the Royal Navy is the biggest part of, of the armed forces, which is why it's called the senior service. In the U.S., the U.S. Navy is the biggest part of the armed mm-hmm. services by country mild as well, mm-hmm. proportionally. Right. More and is in the prepared. best condition and yeah. best prepared and all the rest exactly. of it. And that's because you've got a two-ocean front in the USA. Mm-hmm. We're an island nation, so there is this heritage of sailing. You know, there are enough mm-hmm. people in the U.S. or enough people in Great Britain who know about reef knots and tides and yeah. kind of but you know that so there is that kind of base knowledge and because your navy is already quite big in the case of britain it's the kind of world's largest in the case of the u.s it's one of the world's largest you've got when you need to suddenly rapidly expand you've got a big enough force which you can spread through your rapidly uh, um, increasing sized navies which can then be filtered down to the new guys who are coming in who quite a lot of them already have a base knowledge anyway which means that suddenly you've got this A1 Navy that is really good, which is lapping up the training and, and lapping up the lessons. And by 1944, they're just exceptional. You know, the seamanship is exceptional, the gunnery is exceptional, the minesweeping is exceptional. 
And I think we underestimate just what an important part that plays. First of all, in clearing the Battle of the Atlantic, of course, it goes out the same with the Pacific as well, uh, um, but also in the run up to D Day. Well, and, and it, I mean, it, everything is predicated on it. Isn't it? Uh, the sea power is vital because without it, the United States will not be able to project its power overseas. Simple as that. Yes, and ditto uh, the UK. Right, exactly. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. Backing up all that is incredible industry. The shipbuilding yes. industry. Yes. You know, which is already there. You've already got that big, large-scale mm -hmm. infrastructure, which means when you suddenly need to press the go button and really accelerate, and the go you have the it. capacity to do it. Absolutely. The go button takes it a long way. Uh, one of the things that the U.S. Navy has done in the Pacific by this point in time, not as much in, in Atlantic, but in the Pacific, is have um, forward logistics. Right. Boilers and, yes. and tenders and this entire like beans and bullets operation, yeah. which allows you to continue to operate forward under vast oceanic distances without having bases. And I, I view it as almost like the the uh, naval equivalent of inner refueling post-war, how right. it revolutionizes aerial operations. Um, you know, I think that's really incredible that you have that within about a one one year period, maybe? Yeah, Something it's like amazing, that. isn't it? How quickly yeah. those lessons are learned and how quickly they're implemented, which is Absolutely. the key thing. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. really, truly remarkable. And actually, I mean, I, I call it big war. The, the, the Allied strategy and the approach to war is like I call it big war because it's that long tail. It's that maintenance of the of the of the front. It's keeping those at the cold face of war to an absolute bare minimum. Of course, if you're a poor sod who's actually having to be at that cold face of war, like those guys in the big red one or whatever it might be, then you know it is is obviously it's nightmarish. I mean, I, th I think I think think we're right in saying that you know if, if you're an infantryman or or in a tank in Normandy on the Allied side or indeed on the German side, your statistical chance of getting through is zero. Yeah. You'll, you'll <laughs> you become know. a casualty at some, at some point. point. You will get a Purple Heart or you will be wounded. Or yeah, almost certainly. Well, and the yeah. best example is the 29th Infantry Division. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're a D-Day guy in the 29th Division. Yeah. If you're still on your feet fighting at St. Lowe a month later, you're a fugitive from the law of averages. Because <laughs> yeah. you know, the rifle companies have 100 to 150% casualty yeah. rates. So you do that math, it's pretty easy to see where this is going to go. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say, it's why it really annoys me when the Allies get criticised for being slow and stodgy in Normandy. Too, you just think, Jesus, you know, you try going through those fields or exactly. try going through those open plains around Con. I mean, you know, so true. because, because you've like... got to take the leap of faith. You've got to goad the, the Germans yes. out of their own foxholes. You've got to goad them into counterattacking so that you can then put your weight of fire onto them and uh, trip them and grind them down. Yep. But someone's got to do the put the carrot in front of them. Someone's got to put their butt on the line. Yes. And how many and people are really going to do that? Yeah, I mean... And that, that is not a given. And that's that's often what I mean when I talk about the, the human will of war. Yeah. Um, of course the Allies have more stuff. Of course probabilities favor them. Of course there's a very good chance they're going to win. But they, they won't if you don't have enough people willing to put yeah, their yeah, butts yeah. on the line like that. So how do you think... I mean, how do you think World War II sits in, in U.S. culture at the moment? I mean, what about... I mean... You know, you and I are over here with some Americans at the moment. I'd say, you know, there's there's a few in their 50s. There's quite a lot in their 70s. Mm -hmm. You know, do you think that's because as you get older, you're more interested in the past? You've got time on your hands. You've got money in your pocket because you hopefully had a half-decent career. And you've got the time to do it. So do you think subsequent generations will replenish those I do. people? Yeah, I do. And, I be, and the reason I believe that is I see it in my students. Right. I see that excitement already in 20-year-olds. And many of them determined to, to come here to Normandy or elsewhere to look at these battlefields that, that Americans can't always get to quite easily. Um, yeah. And they and they have it in their heads that they you know they're excited about it and they want to learn about it. So I, I think goes and I but I do also think there is a maturation process. 
right. leads to more interest in history and like you said more time later in life a priority toward it you, you do more reading you learn more you get more interested and um, I think in in the US there's always a fixation on Normandy yep um, as an iconic battlefield and especially the the D-Day landing beaches um, I think there's, just my opinion, there's way too much fixation on uh, Easy Company and the Band of Brothers. Um, I, I would really like it if we could pull our lens back and yes. <laughs> look at other units and other experiences, though I understand why that was so compelling. And I think it's great that the, the story was told because it's generated interest, yes. which is what matters. Uh, but I, but I, I wish that there was a little more openness to, <laughs> to look right. at other experiences as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But do you think so? I mean, do you think the heritage of World War Two is in a in a pretty good place? Uh, so you don't you don't think it's in danger of being forgotten anytime no, soon? No, I, I really don't think so. But I, I might be maybe I'm not the best person to ask because I'm so heavily involved in it. Yeah, and it's, I see so much interest, and maybe that just warps my thinking. But I, I tell you, I think that uh, I think Americans are constantly just just absorbed with this, especially around anniversaries. Yep. Um, this past year, the 75th of the Normandy invasion. Um, I mean, it's just massive interest. Uh, yeah, it's it's just so cool. Yeah, but there's also arguments that are still in play from World War II, um, and a lot of them have to do with the problems that are ongoing in American society of race and culture and and gender and and regionalism and all these and and um, uh, politics and government and you know all of this kind of stuff um, and how our economy has changed. I think some Americans worry that if we ever got into another scrap like this, we wouldn't have the industrial base that we once did because what's made in America anymore? You know right. What I mean, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm saying, the outsourcing of manufacturing and all that kind of stuff. So I, I've seen a lot of consternation over that. Right. Um, and I think that uh, some people would argue that, that, um, that racially we haven't changed enough. Um, I think, you know, that's a fair point, too. Yep. Um, and I, so one of the reasons I think World War II is so incredibly important is the social transformation that comes about. Uh, yep. And so like, like in the U.S., for instance, there's a big argument between Civil War and World War II historians, which was the more significant war. Pointless argument, but fun. Yep. Um, you know, and in Civil War, people are like, well, my God, it's the, you know... Defining moment defining, of U.S. history. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, uh, you know, it ends slavery, and it does this and mm. that, and it keeps the Union together. Okay, yeah, that's great. But... Really, World War II is way more important, in my view, when we look at it from a racial point of view. Hmm. If I'm an African-American in the Civil War, all it's done for me is I'm not a slave anymore. Right. Now I got Jim Crow laws. Now I got yeah. black codes. Now I got racial subjugation that goes yeah, yeah, on yeah. for the better part of the next century. Apartheid, yeah. And, and so why does, why does that begin to change? World War II. The civil rights movement doesn't just happen on a whole cloth. No. Nope. It's because of the forces unleashed by World War II that empowers and grows it. And you see the reverberations then, of course, famously in the 60s, but I think still with us today. Yeah. So I think that's just one example. Of, of the many legacies so of World War II. Many, yeah. And we're not even looking internationally. No, which of course sure. is completely different USA. Yeah. You know, uh, militarily, economically, I mean, globally, and just out in every yeah. single way. Every way, yeah. So I, I think, to me, uh, Civil War is just a warm-up for... <laughs> for and that's me, you know, I teach a Civil War class, but uh, World War II, I, I see, is more significant. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I, I sort of thought about it in those terms, but, but yeah, you know, the, the social mobility that happens as a result of the Second World War, certainly around the world, is, is obviously huge. I mean, the huge amount of um, displaced people in Europe at the end of the war is absolutely just appalling. 
Um, but but in the UK things really really changed. You know they, um, they really did. You know first yeah. Labour government, uh, um, healthcare system, and all the rest of it coming in as a direct result of World War Two. You know, lots, lots, lot, yeah, multiculturalism. Lots of, um, you know, lots of um, officers being commissioned, you know, from from lower class backgrounds, which would, you know, was sort of happening in the First World War, but then completely abandoned again. But but there's no, there's not the kind of turning back of the clock that was in 1919, in 1946. So it's, yeah, it is. It's really, really interesting. Really interesting. Now, listen, before before we stop. Um, I've just got to ask you, okay, so we, we, we've been giving Gavin a bit of a hard time about the bridge over Nijmegen. Why didn't he go straight to the bridge rather than getting the heights first? You know, because if you lose the heights, um, you might lose the, the, the whole operation. But if you don't get the bridge, you're definitely going to lose the operation. So, so why is it? Because R.G. Poulison, who's this friend we've, we've, we've discovered in Nijmegen, he got me a little bit um, half cut, it has to be said, in a, in a pub in, in Nijmegen with that kind of strong Dutch beer. But but he argues he he argues um, that that Gavin made a mistake and it wasn't you know Browning gave him looser uh, instructions and actually it was it was up to him to kind of decide how he deployed his troops. Mm-hmm. But as a but but you're a defender of Gavin and that's good. I am, and all due respect to RG. Uh, <laughs> I just <laughs> want to hear it. I've written a whole you know a whole book about the American have. role in uh, Market Garden called yep. September Hope. Yep. Um, I'm very I good at his too. <laughs> thank you. I, I would say. All due respect to RG, Gavin did prioritize the bridge. He told Colonel Lindquist to send a battalion there. He told him exactly the route to send him there and to go and grab that bridge as quickly as he could, while, of course, he still has to deal with the Grossbeck Heights, plus he's got to deal with Grav. So the mission itself that he's been given is incredibly ambitious, shall we say? For a single division. For a single division, especially without its glider infantry element. Right. He's not going to have for several days. So it's underarmed. It's, it's definitely. And so right there, he's kind of up against it. And so maybe someone would say, well, excuses, excuses. Okay, I get that. But I would say Gavin did tell his subordinate to go and do precisely what RG has suggested should be done correctly, I think. Um, and he took the wrong route. Right. And this led to greater resistance. And this led to, you know, a longer time to grab the bridges. But th- there are question marks over Linkfist anyway, um, you know, mm-hmm. because... There's always this kind of feeling that he's a bit more of a kind of sort of natural pen pusher rather than an action man. Somewhat. Because there's that time in Normandy where he's got Mark Alexander as, as XO, the, you know, his second in command, and Lingvist is the, is the guy in charge. And you kind of logic suggests it should be the other way around because Alexander is this hugely experienced fighting combat man who all the guys love, you know, and he, he, yeah. his reputation just goes before him. Yeah, that's right. You know, out of all your units that you've got, is Lingvist unit the right one to send to the bridge? Um, probably not, but that, that comes down to the drop zones, I suppose, and who's right there and who's available at any given time. Right. Um, you know, so I, I suppose we could quibble with that, but the 504th has a... And that's because it's all done in a massive hurry. It is. It's it got one week. I mean, yeah. I think in some ways Market Garden is brilliant in that sense that you only had one week to prepare this incredible operation. Which, which is, actually... You know, Almost works. Well, it, right. <laughs> I mean, I know. I mean, when Monty says it's ninety percent successful, I mean that that's kind of pushing it. But but but, it it, but you see what he means. I mean, you know, they are. It is just one bridge too far. I mean, it is. That's I mean, the truth of it. I think Monty's phrase is so funny. And what I, what I always say in response is that's like saying you're sort of pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are. You're not. You know, you yeah. see or you don't. But yeah, it's, it's I know. True. But They're but close. but he, but at the same time, um, you know. Gavin puts a 504 down Grave because nothing's going to happen if you don't have someone to rescue you. So what's the point of the Nijmegen Bridge if you don't have the link yeah. to everybody else? Well, um, I mean, every bridge yeah. has to be taken and held. 
Yeah, and 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 the, the Grabridge is interesting because obviously they have guys at both ends, so they yeah. secure both ends. Which you don't. Is, is there ever a reason why they don't have people dropped north of the Nijmegen? Well, bridge? because you're worried about them getting completely destroyed and cut off. Is right. precisely what happened to Frost people. Yeah, you know, and and uh, no no paratrooper wants to be dropped in a built up area. No, um, so that really doesn't make sense. And it, you know, Julian Cook was kind of angry at Gavin. Um, you know, when, when Julian Cook has the mission, the famous mission on the boats to go across the ball and all that. And yeah. He's kind of like, well, General, if you wanted people on the other side there, why don't you just drop them there? Yeah. And that's the way a paratrooper is going to think, of course. Right. But a division commander. And there are houses so, on the other side. Yeah, there are houses on the other so side. So it's still built up on the it's other side. Not, it's not, the not other to the extent. Yeah, but. not quite as much like the downtown area, but it's, you know, it's not a good place to drop unless you're going to get farther out of town and then you end up with the same problem that the 1st Airborne Division has at Osterbeck. Right. How are we going to get there then? And so. There's no good answer. It's a flawed mission. It's a zero defect operation. Right. You know, everything's got to go right for it to matter. And um, so I think Gavin's under the gun. And even indeed, the, you know, the day that uh, uh, they they cross the ball, Gavin has to spend a lot of his day dealing with crises on the Grosbeck Heights. Of course, you know. So that, I think that's a microcosm for the the dilemma he has. So I hate to lay it all on Lindquist, I suppose. But, you know, in the end, Gavin's responsible, I suppose. But it, I think also too, let's say those guys get there. They're going to go run smack into the, the uh, SS units, yep. 10th SS, coming the other way. Right. So are they really going to control the bridge? And yep. Does it matter that much at that point until everybody else is linked up with you, until guards armored has come up and all that? Um, you know, so I, I think that, to me... Um, and I suppose the other thing to, to remember, of course, is that the, the Reichsfeld, which, is, which borders yeah. the, the, the Grosbeek Heights, you know, the British get completely clogged down there till February. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is it is it yeah. is the Hurtcombe Forest of Twenty First Army Group, so it's um, a tough know, place to fight. It's a tough place to fight. Yeah, it really is, and uh, you know, and the other thing too, you don't have your glider infantry. So right there, you lost about what one fourth of your combat power. Yep. So. Okay, my last question for you: favorite general of World War Two? Huh. Well, yeah, just so you, not not necessarily because he's the best, just because the guy you you like is is it. Is it Hubner or Terry Allen or? Um, no, I mean it might. Or is it Gavin? It's 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 a tie. I'm such a weenie. But, uh, <laughs> right now, it's a tie between Gavin, who I think I like on a lot of levels. I think he's an excellent combat commander. I think he has a strong sense of ethics. He's the first commander of any stature in the U.S. Army to advocate desegregation. Uh, so he anticipates the future. Yeah, big tick for that. Yeah, it, very much so. He's a. Um, He's a historian. He's a frustrated historian. So right. as an historian, I like I mean, the Gavin papers are incredible. Yeah. So he's thought ahead to help us you know, later. Yep, yep, yep. And I just think he is what a combat commander should be. And he's what a what an individual should be in terms of how he comports himself. Uh, but he's kind of tied with Robert Eichelberger, who's in the oh, Pacific okay. Theater. Yep. Uh, and I think is the best U.S. commander that hardly anybody's ever heard of. Yep. Um, he does remarkable things in the Pacific. In New Guinea, he wins the first American ground victory at Buna. Yep. Um, he, you know, does well, we were, we were touching on Buna the other day. We were having a conversation about that. But. Yeah, yeah, okay, we were talking about that. But, and then he does remarkable things at Biak and the Philippines. And, uh, right. And again, pretty good guy, I think, personally. Yep. And what about Simpson? I think Simpson is underappreciated. I do too. Yeah, absolutely. I think Simpson is a fine commander. Okay, well, that's another whole conversation that we had as well. Uh, what is the job? Thanks. That's, I mean, really, really interesting. Thank you. Absolutely. Good stuff. Thanks, James. <laughs>